Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Today's episode is... The uh, recording of the live show at Photographiska that happened on Tuesday this week. It was so much fun. So amazing. My guests were Catherine Cohen, Melissa Lozada, Oliva, and Lachi. They were all amazing. Much more about them in the live show itself. And I'm glad that everyone who didn't get a chance to come down in person is going to be able to hear it. Um, The sound is of variable quality. These are the perils of doing a live show. Uh, You don't really know what you're getting until after it's recorded. So uh, some of the levels are a little off, just to to warn you, it's not too bad, but it gets a little funky towards the end. Um, But I think you'll still enjoy it very much. One other announcement, I am uh, taking a little hiatus from the Spark Parade, going on vacation for a little while, taking a much-needed break Um, So I will be back with more new episodes in November. Lots to look forward to. Tim Burgess from the Charlatans, uh, Lady Hawk, tons of other great people. So get excited. Uh, I will be back very soon with brand new stuff for you. But in the meantime, you get to listen to the live show, which is pretty fucking great. So uh, without further ado, here comes the live show from Photographiska, New York. All right, welcome to the Spark Parade. Uh, This is a show where I talk to artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I am Adam Unz. Thank you all so much for being here. This is the Spark Parade Live, obviously, because you're all here. Uh, We are doing this with um, Photographiska in celebration of their amazing Andy Warhol show. I hope you all had a chance to see it downstairs. And also in celebration of more than 100 episodes of the Spark Parade. It was going to be 100 episodes, but, you know, things happen, uh, and now it's more than 100. So um, because we are connecting with uh, the Warhol show, Uh, My guests tonight have all chosen artworks that are either connected to Andy Warhol's work or uh, Warhol adjacent or just um, works that were created in New York in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, And it's really nice to be celebrating Warhol's work and also to be celebrating New York artists and artistry with three New York artists who all represent different artistic disciplines. Um, so uh, I'm just going to introduce my guests here. Um, so 
First up, she is a comedian and actor who hosts a weekly cabaret show at Alan Cummings' East Village venue, Club Cumming. She co-hosts the popular weekly podcast, Seek Treatment, and is the author of the poetry collection, God I Feel Modern Tonight, which came out earlier this year. Please welcome Catherine Cohen. Oh my God, stop. You're embarrassing me. Adam, thank you so much for having me. This is the sexiest venue I've ever been to in my life. Yes. It's breathtaking. It's stunning. I think it's gorgeous. Totally incredible. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get started here with uh, Catherine's spark, um, <gasps> which is Bridget Berlin's Polaroids. Uh, Bridget Berlin was an artist and one of the most prominent and colorful members of Andy Warhol's factory. The book, Bridget Berlin's po Polaroids, collects a small portion of the artist's prolific photographic works. Her Polaroid documentation of celebrities, artists, herself, and others rivaled that of Andy Warhol, although unlike Warhol's work, Berlin's Polaroids were often experimental. A significant amount of her Polaroid work includes image layering through double exposure. Um, now, the first question is always, where did you come across this work? So do you remember seeing her Polaroids for the first time? I do. Cut to me. It's it's 2016. I'm in Williamsburg. I was so young. You wouldn't recognize me. It was a different time. I was walking through Spoonbill Books on Bedford Avenue, and I was clinically depressed. And I saw this Polaroid book, and I was like, knock, knock, hardcover book. That's sexy to me. That makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. I open it up. I'm like... I'm like, I'm like, who the hell is this girl? Because growing up and in general and randomly still, everything that seems cool and sexy is like geared towards women who are like so, so thin and I mm. wish them the best, but it was so refreshing. No, and I literally, I celebrate them. I want to lift up all my thin girls tonight. But I was so excited to see this big woman just like showing her tits, being absolutely unabashedly herself disheveled, but still hanging with like the coolest crowd ever. And I was like, I need to know more about this. Right. Yeah. She's a very unusual character for the factory crowd. Um, she was a socialite. She, her father was the CEO of the Hearst Corporation, which was, you know, the Murdoch's of um, the uh, mid 19th century. And she came from this really rich family and wanted to reject everything that they had ever uh, symbolized and uh, kind of joined the factory crowd because she wanted to stick it to her mother. Um, and most of the people who surrounded Andy Warhol were wanting to be around him because they wanted to be famous. They wanted to like, you know, um, be a part of the coolest crowd. And she did not give a shit about any of that. Oh. It was all about um, you know, being <laughs> defiant, um, you know, rejecting where she'd come from, but also just uh, doing whatever made her happy and, um, you know, experimenting with all these different media. And she got into Polaroid photography before Warhol did. Um, you know, she, she was the person who kind of got him involved in it. She was one of his closest friends for 35 years. And you know, one of the only people who hung around him who he really trusted and actually kept with him all the time instead of, you know, giving them a minute in the spotlight and then kicking them to the curb. So I thought all that was really interesting about her too. Yeah, I think she was like, I know rich people, I know famous people, that's boring to me. 
And that's exactly how I feel. No, <laughs> no I'm dying to be um, paid attention to. But I, I, that's, she has goals in that way. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. And it was like this, um, with Warhol's Polaroids, it felt like it was very much about documenting celebrity and documenting the cool people who he knew. And there was some of that in Bridget Berlin's work, but it was also just about obsessive documentation, constantly taking photos. She used to record conversations and she had over a thousand hours of tapes and it was like, ran the gamut from very mundane things, you know, people talking about going grocery shopping to like scandalous gossip. And um, she collected all of this shit and it was not for any purpose. She just like liked taking photos. She really liked the feeling of pulling film out of a Polaroid camera. And she said she liked that almost as much as taking pictures. <laughs> it so, is quite a rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I think there is something to be said about that, that, you know, with a digital camera, there's nothing tangible. You don't, there's not the, oh, the tactile experience. It's of, humiliating. You know, yeah. My hand is literally sore right now from holding my phone so much. But when I use a Polaroid, I'm like, okay, I'm a scientist. Right. Like, I'm in the dark room. I'm like, you know, doing my thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, you know, being able to, I think also now, if you want to do something like a double exposure, you can do it with an app. But at that time, so she was... So what, just like for people who don't know. Yeah. <laughs> which, of course, does not include me. What is a double exposure? Well... Thank you for asking. Uh, so, for example, she would take a picture with her Polaroid camera of the Empire State Building, mm -hmm. fly to Paris, as you do, and take a picture with the same film still in the camera of the Eiffel Tower, and then develop the film, and so it would have both of those images kind of overlapping on each other. And that was like one of the more straightforward ones, but she would also do stuff where it was like, you know, her face and then two people having sex superimposed on top of <laughs> Amazing. that. Um, so just like weird, crazy experimental stuff. And she did not consider herself an artist. She really rejected the idea that she would ever be considered an artist. And it kind of like got her backup. She would get a little pissy if people suggested that. And, you know, people like Andy Warhol and Gerhard Richter and all of these like really famous influential artists consider her to be a peer, but she was like not having any of it. That wasn't the point. I can for relate. Her. Yeah. It's like, don't you dare celebrate my work. Right. I mean during my lifetime. Wait, and who knows? Seriously. Check swatch. Who knows how long that'll be, but um Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think she's probably m most known for her Polaroids, but she did Polaroids, she taped people obsessively, she did, like, a one-woman show where she would make phone calls from the stage, and she called her mother and <laughs> was, like, you know, trying to get her to say bitchy things, and would say <laughs> to the audience, I told you she's a monster. Um, oh, my God. And... She worked on reception at the factory just because she thought it was fun. Like, that's where she wanted to be. And she always had pugs, and she'd have her pugs with her and do needlepoint. And was really skilled with needlepoint and, like, um, 
towards the end of her life, she let a lot of people into her apartment. She kind of turned into her mother like a society lady at the end of her life. She was actually a lifelong Republican, which doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense with the crowd that she's hanging out with. She was also an intravenous speed user for a really long time. So there's a lot of contradictions there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, an Andy Warhol movie called Chelsea Girls where she talks about um, using amphetamines and shoots up in the movie and is like, just very, you know, that's how we do it. Um, so well, in the Polaroids book, they like have some of her journal entries mm -hmm. and there's one that's like clearly manic, like it's so drug fueled. She's just like, here I am, la 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 la, going outside, so happy. <laughs> like, yeah. That's... That's only drugs. You don't feel that way in life. Like, yeah. La la la. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I've heard her described as a monologist as well. I think primarily because she just spoke in this like stream of consciousness, not really caring if people were listening, just going on and on. And I saw some interviews with her later in life and she spoke quite slowly. And I don't know if that was like the after effects of years of speaking, oh. using speed that she just kind of stopped using it and slowed way down. But she, um, yeah, just like went on and on and on and on and didn't care if anybody was listening and just would not pause for breath. Oh my God, um, we need to get her a podcast. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, she died last year. Oh, uh, that's so recent. Yeah, yeah. Damn. And um, yeah, there were all of these uh, articles where people went to her apartment and interviewed her and she went way off the deep end at the end. She was like, you know, full Fox News, oh, six no. hours a day, Trump supporter. Um, but her apartment was still this, la 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 la. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. Um, and again, the, like the contradictions there where, you know, thinking about being around all the people who were in the factory and it's the exact opposite image to, to what was happening in her life at the end of her life. Um, but this apartment was like the most over-decorated, like, you know, her pug obsession went out of control as well. Like tchotchkes, 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 porcelain pugs everywhere, needlepoint pugs that she had made, like wallpaper that is the most oppressive pattern you could ever imagine. Just every Where was millimeter. It? I think it was on Gramercy Park. Okay, maybe? so literally next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all gonna go field trip after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pop in. Um, but yeah, just uh, a very intense, chaotic atmosphere, and I think it's a pretty good representation of her entire life that it was this person who just like had all of this creative energy and didn't really care about doing anything with it and just was like amassing all of this stuff and it was kind of a cultural hoarder mm. wow yeah pretty uh pretty amazing stuff um she also in her relationship with warhol was sort of a like they were two sides of the same coin. He was very much this like cool, you know, observing the room from a distance, not really wanting to participate, not really showing emotion. And she, as you said, was just like full on, you know, 
getting her clothes off at every second. <laughs> um, she also is famous for uh, a series called The Tit Prince, where she was would take off her top, put her breasts into ink and press them onto paper. And she did Incredible. a series for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30 years of that as well. That's um, a really long time. Right, but also. I haven't even been alive that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 30 years of that to no end, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, a uh, woman of many talents and many contradictions. Yes, very inspiring. Yeah. A unique, a unique figure, Indeed. to say the least. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I think we're ready to uh, move on Love to it. my next guest. Thank, Thank you. you. A round of applause for Catherine Cohen, everyone. Thank you. So now uh, we have my next guest, who is a poet and screenwriter whose book, Paluda, Paluda um, explores the intersection of Latina identity, feminism, hair removal, and what it means to belong. Her novel, Inverse Dreaming of You, is about bringing back Selena uh, to life through a seance and the disastrous consequences that follow. Um, it will be released on October 26th on Astra House. She also co-hosts the podcast Say More with Olivia Gatwood. Please welcome Melissa Lozada Oliva. Hi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so, switching gears here, we're kind of mm. moving uh, slowly further away from Warhol's orbit throughout <laughs> the evening, um, but uh, still some some connections here. Uh, because the Night is a song <laughs> written by Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen. Um, it was released in 1978 as a single from the Patti Smith Group's third album, Easter. The song rose to number 13 on the Billboard 100, um, Hot 100 chart, as well as number five in the United Kingdom and helped propel sales, sales of Easter to mainstream success. Because the Night remains Smith's most recognizable and most commercially successful song to date. Uh, so. Same uh, question to start things off. Do you remember hearing this song for the first time? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first time I really like, I probably heard the song like in an Applebee's commercial first or something. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. But um, I think the first time I was like, whoa, um, someone someone just like did it at karaoke and it. I was like, this is incredible. And everyone was like, ah, yeah. And it was at like queer karaoke. So, you know, all like the Brooklyn lesbians were like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I was like, this is really amazing. And I read this book that I don't remember the name of, um, that is about this, like, the, like, music movement in the 70s, which when you said find an artist from the 80s, I thought Patti Smith was the 80s. I'm so young, also, you know, I, I just, it all melds together. I'm, yeah. I'm 16. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, you know, the, the early 80s is just a hangover of the 70s. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, I just, this song is really beautiful to me, important to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, um, I, I think it's probably the most accessible song that she's yeah. ever recorded. And it's not necessarily representative of any of her other work. Right. Um, but it is this hugely important part of her working life and, you know, this cultural institution that you know everybody knows right. that song everybody loves that song yeah um, i love that she i mean she wrote it 
I mean, she wrote it while she was like waiting for her future husband and father of her kids to call her back. Right. Um, so relatable. <laughs> and then he was supposed to call her at 7.30, but he didn't call her until midnight. And she was like, I guess I'll write this song. <laughs> and then it was like an amazing song about waiting for someone to call you back. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and she said that like at that time, long distance calls were really expensive. Yeah. Her boyfriend and later husband, Fred Smith of um, MC5, mm -hmm. uh, was living in Detroit. She was living in New York and they would make dates to talk on the phone once a week. And, you know, she said, I don't remember the figures, but like, you know, they had $75 in earnings a week. Mm -hmm. and these calls would cost $12 or something. So it was a huge expense. Um, and yeah, just kind of sitting around waiting for him to yeah. call her. I know it's so beautiful. I mean, I feel like every, I feel like, you know, women artists are so good about writing about like longing and desire and like every good thing I've written is cause I'm like, it's like at somebody and I'm like waiting for somebody to like love me. And <laughs> like Patti Smith, this song is about husband and father of her kids. And then she later says like, um, you know, he's, he's passed away, but then her kids like play in her band and mm -hmm. it's just this ode to their dad. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Everyone I write poems about looks like, like the Microsoft word paperclip <laughs> and isn't worth it really. But I feel very like, you know, the sentiment is the same. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and like, I, I, I think it's interesting that she was quite conflicted about writing this song because yeah. like Bruce Springsteen had written the, the bones of it. He had the melody and the chorus, didn't really know what to do with the song. Mm -hmm. and Jimmy Iovine, who um, obviously is, you know, Mr. Apple Hotshot now, at that time had never really produced an album before and Patti Smith was taking a sh uh, chance on him doing this album and he, got the song from Bruce Springsteen and said, let me bring this to Patty, was like bothering her every single day, saying, mm -hmm. gotta look at this song, you've gotta yeah. do something with it, and she didn't want to do it, and it was only because she was stood up for this phone right. call appointment that she finally went, oh, I'll just I guess, yeah. Right. I think it's really cool that she like, I mean, she's such a feminist icon mm. and she is like, this song is about three men and it's like, it's Jimmy, Bruce and my husband. And I don't know, it's such an anthem. I just think it's interesting that she's who she is and mm. this song is, you know, like a, a love song, like for and about men. Right. I'm trying to reclaim liking men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh. I'm glad you know. Yeah. Accomplish one thing. Today. Um, yeah, and because of the men, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, this kind of push-pull that she had her whole life with creating art and not necessarily being comfortable with consumer uh, commercialism, consumerism, and maybe even commercial success. Like she was very ambitious, but yeah, um, uh, you know. She was, uh, had been partners with Robert Maplethorpe. Mm -hmm. They were friends for many years afterwards. And um, they were running in the same circles as Andy Warhol. I did it. <laughs> um, and, the connection. Uh, 
kind of uh, going to places like Max's Kansas City, which again was just down the road from here, um, and hanging out with people like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. but in this way that was like, they're artists, but they're not famous. They're just like going to these places where yeah. famous people are and hanging out. And maybe Robert Mablethorpe being a bit more interested in the kind of glitziness of the factory and Warhol and all of those people. And Patti Smith was a little like, this is all very hollow and shallow and not into it. Such a punk. Right. Um, so I think getting to this point where she, uh, like, famously, I, I'm assuming this was, was actually the thought was, that was in her head when she listened to this song, because she's mentioned it in interviews over and over mm-hmm. again. But she listened to it and said, oh, this is one of those hit songs. And yeah. she knew straight away that it was going to be this big thing. Right. Um, and was really conflicted about that. Like, do I want that kind of fame? And it wasn't the kind of song that she'd been putting out before. So, right. Um, yeah, a very unusual chapter in her life. Yeah. And then I, she, like, after her husband passed away, she had, like, no money. Mm-hmm. And she had to bring the song back and, like, go right. on tours with the song to, like, support her family. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I watched an interview with her where she was talking specifically about that and just saying like this song, she wasn't sure about writing a song with somebody else. She was used to writing her own songs. Mm -hmm. She wasn't sure about taking a song that somebody else had started and then putting her words to it and feeling all of that conflict and the stuff about commercialism and all of that. And then having this song be in many ways the focal point of her entire career, Mm -hmm. at least this monumentous thing that meant that um, you know, she had many periods in her life where she wasn't really making any money off of her own right. art, and this song has been able to sustain her yeah. for all this time. And you know, I think people call her the like punk poet laureate, and I feel like this song is really an example. It's like it's so simple, and it's mm. also you know, and it's simple in this like punk way. It's anthemic, and also. Um, it's just about love. It's just about like wanting someone to love you. And right. as, as you know, that's all poets talk about. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the, it's, you know, I think the feeling that I get from listening to it, it's this kind of like soaring emotional, right. like, uh, it's, it's very intense. And like you said, it's a song about love and the way that she describes how she was feeling mm-hmm. about her future husband at that point that she was like she was so in love with him and having to be away from him and all of that emotion coming into the songwriting is pretty yeah. amazing. Um, and like you said as well, this song sustained her. It ended up being something that she could perform with her kids, and you know it was about her husband, so mm-hmm. it was a really emotional thing so to um, you know be performing it in his memory. But um, after this song came out, she did one more album with her band and then made the decision with her husband to just move to Detroit and make art privately not right. you know, part of the game anymore. And it was really after he died that she went back on the road with this song to make money. So it was like the thing that pulled her back into wow. consciousness. Um, so yeah, quite a song. Yeah, <laughs> let's play it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, no. One, two. Yeah. <laughs> um, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and now, moving along, she 
is an award-winning creative artist, singer, songwriter, and diversity, diversity inclusion advocate. She is legally blind, and in recognition of Blindness Awareness Month, her work will be included in a collection of NFTs released in the last week of October that are audiovisual moving pieces set to music, all created by blind and disabled professional artists. She'll also be performing and presenting at the Wavy Awards, which is an awards show honoring women, LGBTQ, minority status, and disabled artists on October 23rd, and that is sponsored by the New York City Mayor's Office and Blonde Records. Please welcome Lachi. So for our final subject of the evening, the theme from New York, New York, or New York, New York, as it is also known, uh, it is the theme song from the 1977 Martin Scorsese film at New York, New York. It was composed by John Kander with lyrics by Fred Ebb. It was written for and performed in the film by Liza Minnelli. Frank Sinatra's 1980 cover of the song became his final hit and revived his career after he had taken an early retirement in the 1970s. It remains one of the best known songs about New York City. Uh, so, I mean, I could ask you when you first heard this song, but that's like, you know, when did you first become aware of rain or something? Like, I don't think anybody really has an answer to that kind of question. So. Um, more specifically, what is the uh, importance of this song to you? Okay. So I'm going to start by going, saying this. <clears throat> start. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go ahead and sing um, Because of the Night. So I, you know, anyone who knows me, I wasn't born in New York, but I am definitely a New Yorker born and bred. Uh, I tell them that I am part of any mural. If you ever see a mural of New York, I am definitely in it. So I'm a New York uh, foot soldier. And here's the story. So, and I wrote this to Adam. So Adam knows exactly what I'm going to say. And it's he's a good like, story. This is amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I am blind. Um, and you can tell by this really awesome cane. And you know, I started out with my parents who are immigrants from West Africa going, you know, win, succeed. And I was like, well, I do music and I like art. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> no, that's not happening. <laughs> and so I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do it, but then I went to college for business and economics and science and lawyer, whatever, all of those things. <laughs> and, uh, in my head, I said, you know what, I really want to take music classes. I want to do music. I want to do music. And we were living in North Carolina where everything was kind of slow. I had to always beg my parents to drive me around. And I just, as a blind girl that's, you know, fierce, it was difficult to, for me to have independence and pursue my career. So I asked my guidance counselor and I said, what should I do? I obviously want to do music. So what classes should I take? I want to move to New York, but obviously that's not going to happen. He was like, yeah, move to New York. And I was like, well, you're not spo supposed to tell me that, like, aren't you? <laughs> so I had it in my mind, I am going to move to New York. I don't care what anybody says. My parents were like, no, you're not. And I was like, yes, I am. And so uh, I was like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to get into NYU, like people do. I'm just going to get into NYU, and then I'm not going to tell anyone, because if I don't get in, everybody's going to be like, ha, you didn't get in. So I'm going to get into NYU, and then I'm going to just be famous 
And then I'm going to tell all my friends, see? (laughs) 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 So I got the application, I did everything, and I applied to NYU, and I didn't get in. (laughs) So I was like super devastated, because I was just, I had like my bags packed, like I was ready to go, my whole trajectory was ready. And so I didn't get in, my whole world like completely shattered, Um, and even though no one knew, right, it was just me and myself. Um, so I was like, I remember, like, this is so dramatic. I was unpacking, <laughs> like, I'm not going anywhere. And I was like lying on my bed going like, all right, my whole career is over. I guess I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant. And while, you know, we had, what was it, MP3 players? God, I'm aging myself. And <laughs> I was listening to music. And then New York, New York comes on. The Frank, the Frank Sinatra. Whatever his name is, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to teach me about him. Um, the Frank Sinatra version of New York, New York comes on, and every line in the song like slowly galvanizes me. Like you know, like the first line, I'm like, then the second line, I'm like, you know, kind of slowly getting more galvanized. And it was like, start spreading the news. You're leaving today. you're gonna be a part of it and it was just everything like done with the small town blues you're gonna go where you are gonna be king queen i guess um of the hill to the city that doesn't sleep so you can have your independence no matter what and so i was like you know what that song i don't know it was weird because i was like crying and then i heard the song and i was like oh this is what I'm gonna do. Um, and so it's kind of, it's corny, right? It's kind of corny, but it was like, it really got me thinking like, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go do this. And so I did, I literally got up, packed my stuff. I, I didn't have any NYU acceptance letter. I got up, I packed my stuff. My parents were out of town. Uh, and I, with the, the few dollars I had in my pocket or whatever, and the clothes on my back and all the like other two bags of clothing that I packed, um, went to New York, no like like prospect of a place to live. I actually broke into my sister's house, don't tell her, hope she doesn't hear this podcast. <laughs> I broke into my sister's house because I knew she was out of town and she lived in like Long Island. And I stayed there for a week, figured my ish out, eventually got signed to a major imprint record label, then got tossed around here and there. And you know what's the craziest thing about it? I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, my manager's here, I don't, well, you can, you can um, ask Adam to X this out later, but um, we got a call this morning from the White House that was just like, hey, you're a famous blind singer. Come talk at the White House. And it all started from me going like, hey, I'm going to go. And so that's why I had to choose that. That's why I had to choose that song. I always hate using like, white, like well-to-do white males as like an influence, but um, that song really did have a huge impact on me, so. Amazing. (laughs) I told you it was a good story. Um, First of all, I mentioned this to you before, but uh, Solidarity, I I also did not get into NYU, so fuck that place. Oh, yeah, Um, well, uh, you're gonna hate me, but I ended up applying again and then did get in, so I'm sorry. I, I just never applied again. I'm sure I would have gotten in if I uh, tried. It's fine. Um, but yeah, I think uh, 
even if there is that element of cheesiness there, the sentiment, um, anybody who has moved to this city, who has dreamed about being here, whether it's somebody who's an artist and wanted to come here to perform, or just somebody who lives in a small town and is like, I want to live in a big city, New York is the place for me. All of the lyrics in that song, as you said, are this like aspirational, motivational, I'm gonna keep rhyming my words here, um, <laughs> but uh, just gets you fired up thinking about it. Um, and yeah, I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, and honestly, one of the main reasons that I really love it here is the accessibility. Like, the ability for me as a blind woman to be able to travel wherever I want at any time of night. Um, and I also love uh, the fact that people, this is, I don't know if other people are going to agree with this, but I love the fact that people think it's dangerous here and it's not. Because <laughs> then it keeps them from coming. <laughs> really loving this like post-COVID non-tourism, but I, I, I apologize if other people don't like that. But I think one of the, the best things about New York is that, you know, you can be yourself and no one will get in your way. Um, so the bad thing is the good thing, right? You can get your butt kicked and no one will help you, but then you can kick someone's butt and no one will stop you. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, just to get into the history of the song, because that's what I do, uh, the, there's a lot of interesting kind of um, disconnect. The spirit of the song that's this optimistic, defiant idea of, you know, I am going to get out of wherever I'm living and I'm going to make it in the big city. And, you know, the song was written for a film that was a terrible failure for Martin Scorsese, drove him into cocaine addiction and just, you know, really ruined his life for a couple of years. Um, and this was a song that was written for Elias Minnelli by Kander Neb, who wrote Cabaret um, and Chicago. Um, and, you know, this big Broadway team writing the song for this big Broadway star who was Photographed by Andy Warhol. We did it, Joe! Wow! wow. Um, yeah. Ten points for Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, having this, you know, terrible failure, this song that, you know, Liza was singing, but it wasn't really doing much, and then Frank Sinatra grabbing it when he had retired and was, like, trying to make a comeback and not really understanding that, you know, the Great American Songbook was not something that was in the charts anymore, you know, didn't get Led Zeppelin, didn't understand pop music really, and was frustrated by it. And his wife introduced him to this song and he sang it at Radio City a couple of times. And there's this famous thing of him, like the first time he sang it, having to go, how does that start again? Um, <laughs> and it became his signature song for the rest of his career. And I think, even, you know, people say that you can imagine Frank Sinatra in Newark looking across uh, to the city and thinking the same kind of things about, you know, having dreams about moving into the city. But the way, the time of his life when he was singing this song, it was almost this, like, desperate uh, need for relevance and really wanting to be back in the public eye and wanting to have respect from people. Um, so having all of that like fraught emotional content from uh, the people who 
created the song, the people who were singing the song, and then this song that's really about you know, all the best things in life happening and, you know, people just starting their journey, whereas the man who made it famous, this was his last hit. This was the, the end of his career. Yeah, well, first of all, that is actually the epitome of New York, I think, because you come here, you've got all your big city dreams, and of course, you're going to have to get ruffled. You're going to have to make a few pitfalls. You're going to have to sink a few times before you swim because you get thrown in without a teacher, without uh, a safety net. And you're gonna, you're gonna fall, you're gonna, you know, fall to blow in heroin, sure. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what's gonna end up happening is after you fall twice, that third wind's gonna come. You're gonna say, you know what, I don't wanna do this anymore. I wanna move to San Francisco. And then you're gonna see the rent prices and then you're not gonna move. Right. So. Which is exactly what, honestly, I'm saying that as a joke, but that's what happened to me. Like, I had a really great break, and then it kind of fell off. Like, I got signed to this awesome imprint, major imprint under EMI, and where's EMI now? So that happened, and then I got signed to this other big thing, and then that fell apart. And then I was like, you know what? You know, maybe I should leave New York. This is hard. Things are awesome, and then fall. And then awesome, and then fall. And then finally... I started, I went through this phase where I started losing my vision. So I'm already pretty low vision and now it's like going to no vision. So it's like not that scary. Um, but I was like, all right, I need to touch upon my disability inclusion, come out about it and start like advocating for it. Um, and so I started doing that and people were like, oh, that's, you shouldn't do that. That's weird. Uh, everyone's gonna turn away. But I was like, you know what, this like thick skin that New York has given me, this awesome network that New York has given me, this ability to be confident that New York has given me, this ability to see nothing as an obstacle. I mean, if you're able to just, if you're able to figure out New York, nothing is really an obstacle, no matter what you put your mind to. Mm -hmm. And so now we're on this third wind and wind, and the third wind is the wind, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I really think that that trajectory of the song is really the New York experience. At least it's been mine, and you know, a lot of people are still stuck on the first phase of, you know, falling to drugs. But they're gonna come out, and <laughs> yeah. and I and I think that's what that song represents. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean I, that is a really good point that it's not just about aspiring to be a New Yorker. It's also about being here, and you know, this is a city that we all love, I mean, I'm assuming. Um, and uh, it's a point of pride for New Yorkers. You know, you do have that struggle, or at least, you know, most people that I know, when you move here, the city kicks your ass. It's a, it is a, a tough journey trying to get acclimated, trying to learn how the city works and um, become accustomed to the way it is to live here. But um, I think the fact that a lot of people played this song when they were clapping for healthcare workers during the pandemic shows that this is really emblematic of not just um, the idealized version of New York for people who don't live here, but also for the people who live here and love this city mm -hmm. and um, know what a fantastic place it is to, to live in and feel like they're really lucky to be here. Yeah, lucky to be here. I mean, look at our COVID numbers are awesome, first of all. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and uh, it's so funny because I was talking to somebody early t earlier today from LA. And, no, wait, <laughs> cut that out. Um, and um, they were like, oh, you know, uh, I heard that New York was dying, but I was just there and everybody's out. And I was telling them like, yeah, we're letting people think New York is dying so that you guys can stay out. Um, but I, I love that you say it's all about like learning the city and knowing the city because you ever been in that situation? Have you ever seen this? And I know anyone who's a New Yorker has done this. The point of pride is really showing people that you know the city, right? Mm -hmm. So have you ever been in a situation where you see some doofus looking at a map, right? Or something like that. And then somebody comes up to them and they say, oh, go east. And you're like, sweetie, <laughs> obviously it's west. And they're like, it's east. 20 minutes later, the person's gone. You're, you're busy like yelling at this other person that thinks they're more New York than you. Um, or, or like the rules of the subway or like which side of the escalator to stand on. All those kind of things. Like we pride ourselves on the fact that we understand the city. People go, oh, New Yorkers are so rude. I'm like, no, we're not rude. We're just open. And we want you to know that we understand the city. We really, you have to know that we know the city. That's all we want. We just want you to take our directions. <laughs> yeah. And that whole sense of pride, I mean, there is something a little bit aggressive and antagonistic about it. But, um, you know, it, it is... Um, part of the character of the city as well. And you know, when people talk about New Yorkers being rude or whatever, it's, it is still part of the city's charm. Um, yeah. And it's, it, you know, people keep coming here regardless. Um, so yeah, I think having these anthems that are kind of uh, symbols uh, of, of what the, the city is to people, I mean, it's, as you said, having, one of the whitest people to ever live <laughs> singing this song is maybe not quite as representative of the uh, entire population of New York as we would like. But um, yeah, songs like this. I mean, I, like I moved here from uh, London, um, as you can tell from my accent. Um, and uh, it was that song and um, New York State of Mind as well. But you know, in in clubs in London, a lot of times at the end of the night, I'd hear those songs, and it was like I can remember week that I was leaving, you know, here in New York, New York, I'm just like bawling, like, you know, all these emotions about like leaving my home and moving here and feeling excited but scared and all of that stuff. So you didn't get into NYU and you also heard the song and then you moved here too? Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's <laughs> like, there's can you please there. copyright, I need to copyright my story, don't I? <laughs> that, that was a bit of a flash forward. Though, okay. Between those things. Um, that but, uh, yeah, that all of those emotions, um, uh, I think, having a song that's so evocative that can really uh, stir up all those feelings in all manner of people, visitors, people who live here, um, all those kinds of things. It's, uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think the song really does showcase the melting potness because, you know, New York kind of, the, the sound of big band, right, really is sort of very New York. And so I, I think that it does really represent the melting pot of just so many different instruments coming together to showcase sort of the beauty of the lights at night. Yeah. It's a pretty, uh, pretty cool town. <laughs> um, I think that is a lovely note on which to finish. Um, thank you so much for everybody for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having
Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.